And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 100. Who would have thunk it? Not I. The people who listened to last episode because we talked about it. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) True. And guess what? What? I got you something. Nuh-uh. No, I didn't. Oh. <laughs> you motherfucker. <laughs> I got you a piece of cake that I gave you at dinner that was happy birthday to somebody else. <laughs> Did you believe me? Yeah, I totally believed you. <laughs> My butthole puckered because you I was were like, like I, I didn't, didn't get, get her anything. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, now you know I'm not thoughtful. <laughs> I didn't get anything. I, well, I know. I was like, wait, changeling. What the fuck? You definitely got me. <laughs> well, okay. Hundredth episode. We've got some Patreoners to talk about, but then I think we should just get right in because I know my story is going to be very, very long. Maybe not very, very long. But I know Donna had to fucking, like, charge her cell phone so that she could have enough battery to read her story. Well, no. We have to have one thing. What? You went on a ghost hunt. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, this weekend, I went to New Orleans for a Mardi Gras ball. Ball was on Saturday, but I got there Friday. And so, my sister Kelly and I and a few other people went on a ghost tour just around the French Quarter. It was pretty good. It was a walking tour. And it was like two hours. I'm out. Well, well, it was like two hours. I hit my steps that day. Shit. Yeah. Not even using your recliner. I know. And I was sitting in a car for two hours driving to New Orleans and only worked half a day. What the hell? Yeah. But it was it was good. Our tour guide, his name was Roby. He was really good. You know, I liked him. He was, you know, interactive and fun. And I got to see... The place, do you, okay, if y'all remember the story that Donna covered Zach and Addie in New Orleans, we went to the building where he died by suicide. The Omni Hotel. Me and Tiffany stayed there. Do, 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 do. When? Um, after that happened, and I had no idea about it. Really? Mm-hmm. We did get some pictures from where Zach died by suicide that one could think that maybe that was orbish of where he would have jumped it's like right the spot where he jumped from Mm -hmm. clear clear orb like off the building the next one orb is further away from the building and further down some and then gone 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 yeah and it's like uh wait we'll post all right so let's welcome the new patreoners a big hearty hello to Stephanie T. from Arizona. Brady C. from Texas. George B. from Mississippi. Holly H. from Michigan. Leslie M. from Florida. I see your Leslie M. And I raise you a Leslie M. from England. Cheerio. Cheerio, good chip. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. Thank y'all so much for being part of Patreon. We hope you enjoy the bonus content. And if you want to shout out or all the bonus content that they're getting, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. So I totally forgot that it was our 100th episode until like, I don't know. Last week when we brought it up. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. 
Because Carrie's like, I'm doing a big one. I was like, well, I see your big one and I'm going to do a bigger one. So y'all buckle the fuck in. Oh, God. I cannot even imagine what you're about to do. Well, it's not paranormal. Um, do you know what our name is? (laughs) 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 So what I'm going to do is something that sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's not a theory. It's actual facts. I know what it is. What? The Mandela effect. No. Oh. (laughs) The Illuminati. No. It's super illegal shit that the government did. And it all started because of the Cold War, basically. And there's a New York Times article that came after World War II, Korean War, all of that. And it said that POWs might have been brainwashed to become communist. So the CIA director, Alan Dulles, approved a new project. And that project was called MK Ultra on April 13th, 1953. Tell me everything. Have you never heard of this? I, well, I thought you were going to say they like, no. <laughs> Like, I was like, okay, like, okay, she's going to talk about how they gave them, like, drugs and stuff to stay awake. Okay. Are they trying to breed, like, a um, perfect soldier? Like, all the things. That's what I was like. Where's she going with it? Communist? No. I mean, you're on the right track. Okay. MK Ultra is commonly referred to as the CIA's mind control program. Holy shit. Yeah, so they wanted to use the mine as a weapon against the Soviet Union, and it was all about gaining leverage in the Cold War. Also, though, they were like, I mean, big picture, Cold War. Little picture could be useful for assassinations, could be useful for like people like Fidel Castro. Let's get rid of him. All of the things. Okay. So MK Ultra is the CIA's cryptonym. And what it is, is like, you know, a code name because it's CIA. Mm-hmm. And like, why does it have to be cryptonym? Like, why does it have to be cryptic? Right? I'm like, fucking CIA is so scary. Doing all this research, I was like, you're on a watch list now. I, well, I was on that fucking alien thing, the Hopkinsville, that alien thing with all the black websites with the green writing and Mm -hmm. it was myspace all over again and i am from well all the things but also (laughs) the heaven's gates website was very uh i'm on a watch list website (laughs) oh literally since i've been researching this i've had a fucking headache i'm like what the fuck has the cia done like have i had like laser beams shot down and gave me a headache because holy fuck No medicine has taken care of it. Maybe after you tell the story, you'll be good. Or I die. Well. Tiffany, don't say anything. It's nice knowing you. You want my spooky town? I want your spooky town and I want all your Christmas decorations. Okay. Just give me all of your all the things. (laughs) And my clothes. Yeah. So MK is meaning that the project was sponsored by the agency Technical Services Staff And Ultra designates that it was, like, the most secret classification of World War II intelligence. 
And before I get into everything that went down, well, I can't cover everything because literally could be a six-parter. And I know you don't have the attention span for that. Uh, Girl, you stole my line. I was about to say that for you. I mean, you're not wrong. And neither am I. (laughs) No. So yeah, before I get into what I can cover, because Carrie is a naysayer and a non-believer usually... Not when it comes to government shit. They do all kind of crazy shit. (laughs) I'm just going to say this is all true. There's proof. Flash to 1973 and there's like government-wide panic because of Watergate. Well, the CIA director at the time is Richard Helms. And he was like, tippy type on the typewriter, destroy all of MK Ultra." Okay, so then... Files got destroyed. However, there was like 20,000 documents that were mislabeled. (gasps) Sorry, not mislabeled, but incorrectly stored in financial records in that building. So when they did a Freedom of Information Act request, they found those documents and like discovered all the shit. And then like they had... They had like a Senate hearing in 1977, like all the things, but we don't know all of it because, yeah, I mean, some of the shit on here is redacted, but like 98% of it has been destroyed. Jesus. So when I tell you what I'm going to tell you, like this is just the tip and we all know there's a lot more than just the tip. But that tip can do a lot of damage. <laughs> I'm speechless. I don't tell me everything. I'm like literally like, tell me. <laughs> All right. Now let's go to April 16th, 1943. This will play a very vital part of this whole project. Dr. Albert Hoffman, he's a Swiss chemist. He was researching the synthesis of lysergic acid compound. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And by accident, some of it got absorbed through his fingertip. Well, then he was like, I feel a little bit funny. So three days later, he's like, let me take some of it. So he ingested 250 micrograms. And that's of LSD. Oh, that's what that is. Oh, shit. Mm -hmm. And that was basically the first LSD slash acid trip. Of the world. He created LSD. Holy shit. Yeah. So now let's go back to 1953 and the MK Ultra director at the time, Sidney Gottlieb, a terrible, awful, no good human being, is now seen as the man who brought LSD to America. Oh no. Yeah. And so unwittingly, the person who created the, like, LSD counterculture, too. Mm -hmm. So in the early 1950s, he got the CIA to pay, like, $240,000, like, back then, to buy the entire supply of LSD, like, around the world. Brought it to the United States, and he started putting it in different places, like, different research projects in different institutions and stuff. To find out what LSD was, how people reacted to it, 
and how it might be a tool for mind control. What the fuck? But it wasn't just LSD. MKUltra used a lot of different things to alter people's mental states and brain functions. A lot of different drugs, like barbiturates, I mean, all of it, other chemicals, hypnosis, sensory deprivation, isolation, verbal, sexual abuse. Oh, my God. Just torture. This project had all of that. All of it. Fuck them. And this is only the part we know from these pages that didn't get destroyed. Do you think that somebody actually filed them incorrectly, or do you think they did it on purpose? I don't know. I bet somebody did it on purpose. It's very Aaron Brockovich. Yeah. I don't know. So one of the documents from 1955, it kind of... Tells you of all of the, all of the different like sub projects that are under MK Ultra, and these are going to be it's seventeen different like things. So like, don't zone out because this is going to give you a preview of what I'm going to talk about. It ranges from like one substances which will promote illogical thinking and impulsiveness to the point where the recipient would be discredited in public. Materials which will cause the victim to age faster or slower in maturity. Um, hello, Benjamin Button. What in the fuck? But wait, can they stop me from having wrinkles? Nah, bitch. Damn it. Materials which will cause temporary or permanent brain damage and the loss of memory. Substances which will enhance the ability of individuals to withstand privation, torture, and coercion during interrogation and so-called brainwashing. Substances which will produce a chemical that can cause blisters. A knockout pill which can be serotypically administered in drinks, food, cigarettes, as an aerosol, etc., <laughs> which will be safe to use, provide a maximum of amnesia, and be suitable for use by agent types on an ad hoc basis. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. What in the date rape is going on? Yeah. I mean, all I can think about is J-E-L-L-O. Damn. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> so there is a government scientist. His name's Dr. Russell Monroe. And he spoke to ABC News in 1979. He said that the CIA was looking for, and I quote, an incapacitating agent, an agent that would not harm permanently, but incapacitate temporarily. What the fuck? Mm -hmm. Mind control was a humanistic way to wage a war. A humanistic? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Now, tell me if this sounds humanistic. There was a mental health patient in Kentucky who was dosed with LSD continuously for 174 days. What in the unethical bullshit is going on? Mm-hmm. But they didn't run that by their fucking IRB. What the fuck's an IRB? We talked about it. It's the uh, Internal Review Board or the Institutional Review Board. It's like, because shit like this went down before... If you want to do any research with human subjects, you have to go through the place's institutional review board. So, like, all universities have it, all, like, hospitals where research is conducted and all that, so that they approve your research so that you're not fucking giving some poor man LSD for 174 days straight. Jesus, Mary and Joseph. 
should I just stay on this soapbox or should I step off for a minute? Girl, you're going to be on that soapbox. Your legs, your dogs are going to be barking. Okay, I'm just going to just sit down. Crisscross applesauce on this box and mm-hmm. I'll just wait for the next thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I got a little ahead of myself on the that patient, but I just had to say like, that's not humanistic because it all started with in-house testing. On agents. Mm-hmm. Cool. You know, people there to defend our country and all. Let's test it on them. Mm-hmm. So Gottlieb was over this, and he's like, like, if we know that they're being, like, if people know that they're being tested and all this, eh, we don't know how it's going to work. So let's just do it more in a public setting. So agents, y'all can start dosing each other, but only at the office. You know where important shit happens. Yeah, let's have you all drugged out on LSD. Yeah. What the fuckity fuck? However, they said that the targeted individual would have no prior knowledge. So like, oh, this glass of water, it's great. But then after they did it, they would tell them like, got you. You about to go on a trip, you know, on your favorite rocket ship or whatever the shit that is. Okay. First of all, this is like teenage boy pranking gone very wrong. Uh Uh-huh. First of all. Second of all. If you truly, from a research standpoint, if you were truly worried about the knowledge of the test's effect on the results, why would you tell them once you've dosed them that they've been dosed? Right. Like, let it play out at that point so you can get an accurate thing because then they're going to be like, oh, my God, I've been dosed, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. Let the cards fall where they may. If you're going to do this unethical shit, let's see where it goes. Yeah. Well, security personnel was thinking just like you, like, these people are unhinged. You know, because it is. Boys will be boys. Which is so fucked up. I can't even say it. It's so fucked up. (laughs) That's not a thing for the record. Like, boys will be boys. Like, that's stupid. That's not a thing. Yes. Just because you're a boy doesn't mean you get to do stupid shit. Just because you're a girl doesn't mean you get to do stupid shit. Don't do stupid shit. Yes. Cool, this soapbox is going to be worn out today. Well, like the big shebang was there was a plot that someone found out to spike the punch bowl at the Christmas party. Nuh-uh. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a now. Okay. You know those videos you're like, this is the longest story ever, Carrie, so can you please stop interrupting? And I will, I promise. Have you seen those videos on Facebook where these people like prank each other and they do like all this like crazy stuff and it's like they just keep trying to get bigger and bigger and bigger with the pranks. And I know that there's probably lots of types. It's not like this one thing, but this, the one I can think about is just these like bunch of guys that constantly prank each other and it tries to get bigger and bigger. That's what I feel like this is like, okay, so I dosed Bill's cigarette. Okay, I see you, Bill Cigarette, and I'm going to get the Christmas party. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? It's like... Yes. What the fuck? Yes. So, there was a literal memo sent out that said, hey, LSD is, like, serious, and it's basically insanity for 8 to 18 hours, so let's not do it, and... We strongly oppose any sort of LSD testing in the Christmas punch bowls. 
Meanwhile, what happens to poor Peggy Sue that is at that fucking Christmas party and doesn't know she's motherfucking pregnant and you fucking dosed her with LSD? Well, at the time, it hadn't been around a long time. Yeah, but still, you're putting a fucking hallucinogenic that you are testing because you know that it has these properties to make you have amnesia or all these different things. Like, you know it's this, like, hallucinogenic drug. How in the fuck do you not just logically go, hmm, probably not a good idea in pregnancy? Well, some more shit happened. I might going to have to take a break from this in a minute. I'm really getting mad. <laughs> well, there is another, quote unquote, in-house incident, and it ended in death. <gasps> the man's name is Frank Olson, and if you've watched Wormwood on Netflix, it's all about him. In 1943, Frank Olson started working at Camp Dietrich, he specialized in bacteria use in aerosol delivery. His colleagues, they worked in poisonous paper, fountain pens, and lipstick. I'm never going to leave my motherfucking house again. Right? I'm like, what the fuck? I think he was doing stuff with anthrax. (sighs) Jesus God. Well, in November of 1953, he went to a conference with two of his colleagues. And when he came back, he was just... Completely different. Like, he was depressed. And he told his wife that he had done something wrong. But, of course, he said, I can't tell you what I did. That poor wife. hmm Well, how he was acting and, like, his family was like, what the fuck? So his boss is like, all right, you're going to have a nervous breakdown. Let's go to New York for treatment because you're stressed out. All of the things. Because, I mean, he's got a stressful job. It was like a week. He didn't contact his family or anything, but he's in New York. Well, November 28th, 1953, he's sharing a room with Dr. Robert Lashbrook. And he fell or jumped to his death (gasps) from the 13th story window of a hotel. It's a Hotel Stradler in New York. And so... His wife and his three children were, you know, left without a father and a husband. Oh, my God. But from the beginning, they were very suspicious. Like, something changed in him, you know? hmm Well, the night manager of the hotel was like, mm, something was weird about this. Because he found Frank on the street. And he said that Frank was trying to tell him something, but... He couldn't get out what he wanted to say. And then when he looked up, like the night manager looked Mm -hmm. up, he noticed that the window shade was stuck through the broken window. So Hmm. who would jump through a closed window to die by suicide? So fast forward to 1975, that whole thing about the CIA and the FOIA request and all of that, Mm -hmm. it gets kind of leaked about, oh, you know, Frank's involvement and all of this. And so his family got a $750,000 check from the government. What? Mm -hmm. Because they learned that he went to a retreat with his two colleagues or whatever 
but they were told that they were going to do some more research. And it wasn't that. What they were doing is the CIA secretly gave them doses of LSD without telling them, obviously secretly, you know. But they did this to see what their reactions would be. So what happened, Lashbrook poured the alcohol, like they had like, I don't know, vodka, poured it into the drinks, you know, like the cups, and then poured Gottlieb's and his own drink in from a different thing. Everyone's like, whatever, you know, it's alcohol. And they're like the two big wigs. So, Mm -hmm. of course, like they probably have top shelf, whatevs, you know. Well, then afterwards, they're like, by the way, y'all just got dosed with LSD. Because they wanted to know now, like, what you're going to do. Because they all have secrets. They're all working on this huge project. Mm -hmm. So, like, are you going to be susceptible to tell those secrets? Mm -hmm. Well, they said that Frank became enraged. Because, you know, like, he's like, what the fuck? hmm So that's what he meant by, like, he did something bad. Like, he did a drug. And now he's like, what the fuck? I'm working for some shady fuckers. Yeah. Well, then that week after that, when he met with the doctor, he had told the doctor that he felt like he was being followed. Well, and two, you know what? This is what I would do. I would be like... Okay, so they gave me LSD as a test. Are they sending me to this doctor as a test? So can I actually tell this doctor anything? Because is this a test too? Right. Well, so that Dr. Lashbrook, his colleague, was in the room with him when he died by suicide, when he jumped, supposedly, allegedly. So Lashbrook called 911, you know, like, oh, shit, Mm -hmm. you know. However... He never called for help. What? Mm-hmm. But he did make one call, and that was overheard by the hotel operator because, you know, during the 1950s, mm-hmm. you know, you had to call the operator. Could I have had that job? Because I would have listened all the time. One call would have been through. Like, if that person had an hour-long conversation, I would have been on it the whole time. Mm-hmm. They'd been like, why can only one person? Hold on. I need to know what Betty's making for dinner. Mm-hmm. But Okay. So this is what the operator heard. Well, he's gone. And then the other person said, that's too bad. And then both of them hung up. Jesus. The other person was Gottlieb. I knew it. So fast forward to 1994. And Eric Olson is the son of Frank Olson. And he had his father's body exhumed because his mom passed away. And they wanted them to be buried together. So they had to exhume his body. Well, he's like, you know what? Since he's exhumed, let's have a second autopsy done. Because I've never felt right about it. But, you know, let's do it. The first one had, like, some little cuts and stuff. But it's like, okay, well, it was a closed window. Yeah. Whatevs. But this one is, like, blunt force trauma to the head, injury to the chest. That didn't occur during the fall And it likely occurred in the room before the fall. He had, like, a large hematoma on the left side of his head. James Stars, he's a professor of law and forensic science at George Washington University National Law Center. That's a long one. 
He said the evidence is rankly and starkly suggestive of homicide. Wow. All right. So then the CIA is like, we need to see this out in the field. So they went to universities and such and asked for volunteers, but never really as a CIA. And the volunteers really didn't know what they were volunteering for. So a notable person that did one of these university volunteer things is Ken Kessie, and he is the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Well, I wonder why. <laughs> and, I mean, he was also, like, a huge inspiration for the counterculture movement. Again. I imagine that. Mm-hmm. So he was first exposed to LSD and other drugs because, oh, yeah, the CIA introduced magic mushrooms to the U.S. as well. But it's the same motherfucking people, a.k.a. the government, that started this fucking war on drugs that has destroyed our prison system and just our judicial system, period. When you have somebody that fucking is selling weed in jail for longer than someone for fucking attempted murder, Mm -hmm. we got a problem. And it started from these people. Yep. So, Kessie was a graduate student at Stanford University, and he didn't even sign up to be involved in this, but his neighbor did, who was a psychologist. Well, he had to back out at last minute, and so Kessie was like, all right, cool, I'll do it, whatever. But, like, he had never done drugs. He was, he had never even tasted alcohol. He was a really big athlete and stuff. Mm -hmm. He was, like... Training? Yeah, he was training for the 1960 Olympics. Holy shit. Yeah, because he had already earned a place on the wrestling team as an alternate. So again, Kessie did not know that they were part of this thing for CIA Mm -hmm. stuff. He said that he thought they were trying to cure insane people. But really what they were, you know, trying to do was to weaken people And, like, see how much they could do to put them under control of other people. They would also run tests on inmates. And one of the, like, big ones is Whitey Bulger. Whitey was an infamous gangster, and he was exposed to the LSD testing when he was in federal prison in Atlanta. And he did this testing in exchange for a lighter sentencing. So for 18 months, Bolger and other inmates, they did the LSD drug testing. Bolger kept a journal, and this is one of his little entries. He said, horrible LSD experiences followed by thoughts of suicide and deep depression. He was just so negatively affected by it. He compared that program to the Nazi doctors in the concentration camps. Again, meanwhile, now, if you're going to do research with vulnerable populations, such as prisoners, there's like all these extra hoops you have to jump through. And you can't have that level of reward, for like lack of a better word, like how they were, they participated because they got a lighter sentence. You can't do that. And at the very least, if they're paid participants, you have to like acknowledge that when you publish, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it's just like, 
you, when you hear stories like this, you're like, oh, no wonder it's so hard to get approval to do research on those people, you know, yeah. with those, with people in those populations. Like, it's just like mind blowing. Yeah. How shitty people are. Bolger said that he had really high anxiety and it also was elevated because he felt like he couldn't talk to anyone about it because if he said, hey, I'm having these weird hallucinations and all of the things. Because they didn't tell them what LSD would do to them. So he's having these really weird acid trips. And he doesn't want to say, hey, I see a fucking like dragon over there. Because he doesn't want to be in a mental institution. Mm-hmm. And again, he is a prisoner. So like, you know, who's going to believe me? Or who's going to care? We care. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Another thing that he wrote in his notebook is, I was in prison for committing a crime, and I feel like they committed a worse crime on me. And moving on to some people who were not volunteers at all. Oh, boy. So there was this professional tennis player, and he was, like, one of, like, the greatest tennis players of all time. At this time, his name was Harold Blower, and he was having a bout of depression because he had just recently got divorced. So he checked himself into a New York hospital or a psychiatric institute, I should say. Sorry. But he was diagnosed as pseudoneurotic schizophrenic. So he checked in December 1952 and just in a month, he died. <gasps> oh, my God. So he was improving and he was scheduled for release. And then the doctors began treating him with these injections. And what the injections were, were a derivative of mescaline, which is like a really pure drug, like peyote, basically, like the pure LSD Jesus. And these doctors had no idea what they were injecting with. There was a doctor, James Cattell, who later said, we didn't know whether it was dog piss or what we were giving him. I mean, how did they even, how did that come about then? Because they had a classified agreement between the Army Chemical Corps and it was like everything for potential use in warfare And this institute and those injections that they gave him killed him. And of course, there was like a huge cover up. And I think the family sued and like all of the things. And they did get a settlement. So like that was like the Army Chemical Corps. However, the principal researcher at that psychiatric institute was the CIA consultant for the MKUltra project. Mm, that's how. Mm-hmm. And now we get to Wayne Ritchie, a man's name that I had to say 20 times to not get the W and the R messed up. <laughs> you did really well. Thank you. He was a deputy U.S. Marshal and a veteran of the Marine Corps. He was at a holiday party. Those damn holiday parties. Don't go. Mm-mm. Stay home. Mm-hmm. It was December 1957, and he was allegedly, I guess I should say, 
unknowingly dosed while at this party. At the end of the party, he started to feel very worthless and just had high anxiety. He started acting very erratic. So then after that, he had an argument with his girlfriend because she's like, I want to move away from San Francisco, all of the things. He was like, I don't know, like, fuck it. I'm tired of all of this. Got his government-issued guns and tried to get money for a plane ticket by robbing a bar. Oh, no. During the robbery attempt, someone at the bar knocked him out. And by the time he came to, police were there arresting him. And he pled guilty, sentenced to five years of probation and a fine of 500 And he was forced to resign from the U.S. Marshals. He went on to be a house painter for the rest of his life. And then more than 40 years later, he learned of the CIA's program that had tested LSD and other drugs on people in San Francisco. And so he filed a suit because he was like... This might be wild, like that one fucking night. Yeah. Went crazy. Yeah. Lost everything, literally. Yeah. It was dismissed because the court said, it's quite possible, but it's probably just a result of like a weird, like an organic condition. But what was his proof that, Well, I mean, you can't just be like, well, they they were testing in the city. Well, in a sworn deposition... Ira Feldman, who was a CIA agent involved in MKUltra, he explained that he observed unknowing citizens he had drugged with LSD. And he said, you just sit back away and let them worry, like this nitwit Richie. Then he like goes on and says that Richie's dose was a, quote, full head, and that Richie was targeted because he, quote, deserved to suffer. <gasps> Yeah. But so the court said, "Mm, this Feldman guy might have just been trying to be funny. Mm -mm. I'm like, it's a sworn deposition. So, like, that's on him if he's lying. Mm -hmm. Get him for perjury then. Yeah. So, like, these people, like, are literally, their lives, Frank Olson. Ruined. Yeah. Taken from him. Dead. Mm -hmm. Wayne Ritchie's. He's living, but everything is gone. Like, his livelihood. Mm -hmm. I mean, lucky for him, he was able to find a different career path and, like, you know, I mean, and got good work. Yeah, for sure. But it wasn't what he was destined to do. Yeah. And then here's the big kicker. There is a really notorious person who was a volunteer for these tests. There was a 16-year-old undergrad student at Harvard, and he took part in a behavioral engineering project run by the CIA. Again, didn't know it was a CIA. Mm -hmm. There were 22 test subjects, and each of them had a code name. This 16-year-old's code name was Lawful. 16-year-old undergraduate student? Mm Mm-hmm. He was that fucking smart. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. But so his name was lawful because he was so straight laced, you know, just he's fucking 16 years old at Harvard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's more of a rule follower than me. Mm hmm. 
So this study was ran by Dr. Henry Murray, and each subject, all 22 of them, had to write an essay and just in full detail of their hopes and their dreams and their aspirations, okay? Then they were taken into a room where they were hooked up with like electrodes and all of the shit to monitor their vitals while they were berated. So they were subjected to extremely personal, stressful, and brutal critiques of their essays. And like, these are their hopes, dreams, aspirations. Yeah, their vulnerabilities. Yeah. But then after these attacks, they were forced to watch the videos of them (gasps) being verbally and psychologically assaulted. And not just once, but multiple times. Oh, my God. Mm Mm-hmm. First of all, I don't want to watch a video of myself in life, Mm -hmm. much less a fucking torture video. Yeah. I mean, to me, this would be like me having to watch an episode of What Not to Wear, like back in the day, how Stacey and London were like rude. Yes. And like, one, the three-way mirror, that kind of fucking thing. And if I had to watch that on repeat, I'd like, I would hate myself. Mm Mm-hmm. So this 16-year-old, he had the worst reaction to being interrogated. Because, hello, he's 16. He's a fucking child. Yes. And he had, like, a lack of social skills and all of that. He had been bullied as a child. So that triggered memories and all of that. It really just fucking triggered him in really bad ways. He started having terrible nightmares and... Eventually, it drove him to isolation, and so he moved to Lincoln, Montana. This guy was Theodore John Kaczynski. No! Who would one day be known as the The Unabomber! Yeah. What? Like, what the fuck? What? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Am I stupid that I didn't know that's part of the story? I feel like I, like... How have I watched all this stuff on the Unabomber and never knew that? Because it's fucking MK Ultra. They probably don't want you to know it. Like, I have watched, I mean, at least one Forensic Files on it. <laughs> I've watched one. <laughs> what in the fuckity fuck? And again, we know, like, one thing doesn't create, but that's a fucking stepping stone. But it created the fear, the need for isolation, and the disdain for the government. Even just take this episode. Like, I joked at the beginning that this is, like, giving me agoraphobia, like, not wanting to leave the fucking house. Imagine if you actually lived it. I can't. The level of fear, distrust, paranoia would be enough to ruin anyone. Okay, so moving right along, there's more projects, and one is called Midnight Climax. Yes, it sounds sexual because, yes, it is. And I would imagine that it is not consensual. Sex is? Okay, then that means no. If you have to put a question mark at the end, it's not. Sometimes they might not even have sex. Okay, tell me. Okay. So this started in 1954, and what it was, was CIA-run safe houses in San Francisco and New York City. Here's the part where people 
didn't know that they needed to consent to. Okay. This whole thing that I'm about to tell you was established to learn the effects of LSD on unconsenting individuals. Wow. Mm-hmm. So George Hunter White was in charge of this project, and he is, mm, mm, he's a character. So what they did, sex workers were basically on the CIA payroll, and they would lure clients back to these safe houses that they made to look like a brothel, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I picture like, well, they said it was kind of like French noir kind of shit. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. And then they'd pour him a drink because, you know, like, it's what you do. Mm-hmm. And different substances, including LSD. Oh my God. And then either they would have sex, not have sex, depending on how the men reacted to it. But okay, so they're doing this. But how do they monitor them? Oh, because they were at the safe houses behind a one-way glass. And usually it was just like one man, and it was that guy white. And he was like a boozer. Mm. So he had a ring-a-ding-ding, a little martini uh, in his hand all the time. They said that he would like finish off a quart of gin a night. Damn. But here's the thing. So he's having his martini, pinky up, watching his, like, live action porn Mm -hmm. of this poor individual who's fucking drugged by the CIA. Mm -hmm. He's getting paid for this, but he is sitting on a toilet. I'm sorry, what? Yes, he is sitting on a toilet. What in the glory hole is happening? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. What? Because he could not miss anything, honey. Like, one of his friends was like, oh, I got you. What? Mm-hmm. Please I, tell me they had a ventilation system. I have no words. I have no words. Because I guess, I mean. When you gotta go, you gotta go. Well, also, he loves to drink, so I guess he just sat down and peed a lot. I mean, once you break the seal when you're drinking, you gotta keep going. Right? And he said, I ain't missing my show. I ain't got DVR for this. <laughs> what the fuck? I mean, it's basically the Truman Show. He he was like, uh, pause. Well, Operation Midnight Climax had not reached its climax yet because it started to expand. And it started, you know, just dosing people in restaurants, bars, and on the beach. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And... Old White, you know, I told you he was a character. He had his eye set on this local club singer, Ruth Kelly. And he flirted with her and flirted with her. But she always denied his advances. Well, one night he drugged her with LSD right before she went up on stage to perform. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. And he just wanted to see what happens. What a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. But we know he didn't want to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Well, she made it through her performance, but was... Sloppy. Mm-hmm. And people helped her, like, 
oh, honey, something is, you know, let's get you to the hospital. So she made it to the hospital before he could get to her. Oh, shit, the drama. Yeah. So luckily, she was saved, but... Like, he was going to basically fucking rape her. No basically about it. Yeah. Like, in the name of science. Yeah, right. You know, like, fuck Mm -hmm. you. Fuck you. One, you get to watch. It's never enough. No. And, okay, so is someone else going to sit on your porta potty while you're fucking her? Nope. Mm Mm-mm. So, there were neighbors around these safe houses because, you know, they got to look normal and shit. Right. And they would complain about, like, what's going on here. They would say that there's always men with guns and shoulder straps and they're chasing after women. And half of these women are, like, undressed or, like, in various states of undress. Old character white he acknowledged that he himself used LSD sometimes while he was conducting these experiments. Imagine that. And he said that clear thinking was non-existent while he was under the influence of these drugs. But it vanished right after the session. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And so he wrote to Sidney Gottlieb. It, was I saying Gottlieb earlier? I think so. Well, it's Gottlieb, y'all. You know, I mean, call me Gary. So in his letter to Gottlieb, he put, Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, cheat, steal, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the All-Highest? What Uh the fuck? Uh Uh-huh. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. My thoughts, exactly. It takes a lot for me to say fuck you, but uh, a fuck you. Yeah. Like, he wrote this in an official document. Like, he's like, horty whore whore. Like, if, 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 this, if this is the shit we're seeing. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Just the fucking tip. And then there was a project where we deal with the shittiest people ever. We haven't been already. Oh, but wait, there's more. So according to Stephen Kinzer, who's the author of Poisoner in Chief, which is what Gottlieb is called. That's a really cool name. Like, not cool like, oh, he's so cool. Like, cool like, that's a really good, like, play on words. Yeah. I think he was also called, like, a dirty trickster. I'm like, you can't be trusted with that name. He said that this CIA project was continuing the work that started in the World War II era Japanese facilities and the Nazi concentration camps. And it was all about subduing and controlling human minds. Because that's the work you want to continue. Mm-hmm. So Kinzer went on to write that MK Ultra's use of mescaline, which I talked about before with Kind of like peyote. Mm Mm-hmm. That really was a practice that was started in the concentration camps. Furthermore, on this project, and I think it was called Project Paperclip, if I'm not wrong. They had a lot of projects. It's like Project Artichoke, Project... You know, 
of all the motherfucking projects, that'd be some shit I was stuck with. Um, I'm on Project Paperclip. <laughs> like, you have all these badass names, and I'm like, I'm on the Paperclip one. <laughs> Am I wrong? I mean, they hold stuff together. And little Donna also... Today, earlier, just a minute ago, I used it as a fingernail. You know, <laughs> those were my witch fingernails. Did you never do that? Yes, I did. Okay. <laughs> so I'm down with the paperclip. I mean, because it says something I would still do, too. <laughs> I mean, it was there for the taking. <laughs> <laughs> Why does it feel so good? On the I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Another reason I'm single. The shit we talk about. I like pressure, but only on my fingertip. <laughs> What's your erogenous area? My fingertip. <laughs> <laughs> Just the tip. No, I'm talking about my fingertip. So Project Paperclip, a.k.a. Witch's Fingernails, they brought Nazis over to Fort Detrick in Maryland to instruct CIA officers on the lethal uses of sarin gas and how long it took people to die from sarin. I... Have no words. I'm like, <laughs> these were not like prisoners of war. Like, you know what I mean? These were people they fucking, like, I can't even talk about that kind of shit. I, I can't even, I, 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 I can't, uh-uh. I, I can't touch that. Yeah. There is this experiment that some soldiers had signed up for, and it was like, how to help cure the common cold or some shit like that, okay? And, of course, the soldiers sign up, whatever. So they're given gas masks, and they were told, do not remove these masks at any time. So they're thinking, okay, this is weird, but common cold, like, through the air, whatevs. But then their arms are, like, placed on the table, and there's two people, like, two soldiers, Arms are placed on the table, and there's this cloth that's wrapped around their left arm, or one of their arms. Then the guy comes, and he puts two rows of ten dots of, like, droplets of this liquid, and then he leaves. And this one soldier, and I fucking suck because I cannot remember his name, but he is like, holy shit, I can't breathe. Like, what's going on? Like, you know, just... Wants to tear everything off, cannot breathe, feeling so suffocated, all of the things. And they were, like, locked into this little room. I think it was, like, 20 minutes that they stayed there? Question mark, question mark? Well, it turns out that those droplets, mm-hmm. sarin gas. Mm-hmm. Oh, what was it for, really? Not the common cold. It was to know, what's the lethal dosage of sarin gas? Oh, my God. Did they die? No, they they survived. They walked out. But it's like, okay, so these people signed up to cure the common cold. And if 20 drops was too much. They would have died. They would have died. And For what? Right. And then be like, well, let's try 19. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, what the fuck? Okay, so that's all bad. We know this. But then the shit-fueled experiments that I just talked about were not solely on humans. So, trigger warning. Animals. Animals. I'm going to go through these fast because 
Like, yeah, no one wants to hear that. Tell us all about the people dying. <laughs> no, I know. Okay, so they were like, let's mind control dogs. Oh, no. They had these six dogs, and they were going to be remote-controlled dogs. Oh, good. They were going to be made to, like, run, stop, turn, all the things. They tried, like, a plastic helmet that had electrodes and all of that, but that wasn't good enough. And there are, like, you know, some nasty details where infection, Mm. all of the things. But also, I mean, it's still all gross because then they were like, let's surgically implant some shit. And so they embedded an electrode and it was within the, quote, mound of dental cement on the skull. And then it ran between the point of the shoulder blades. And then it could be like affixed to the standard dog harness. Um, what? Mm-hmm. So basically this was... Dogs were forced to have surgery, have this device implanted in their brain, and all of their basic motor skills were controlled by a remote that a human had, and that also included electric shockwave signaling. Oh, my God. They did six dogs. They did successfully, like, stop, turn, and they did, like, go in a square. Mm Mm-hmm. They did control them, but they couldn't do it, like, at a distance, and so they didn't go further with it. They're like, it works, but we can't really have it out in the field. It couldn't do, you know, it couldn't be, like, a fucking remote control car because, you know, these are fucking animals. Mm -hmm. So, there's that. Then there's this other guy, Baldwin, and he performed lobotomies on apes. Oh, my God. And then he would also put them into sensory deprivation chambers. Mm -mm. There's no information if he did this to humans, but he did discuss with an outside consultant, like, what would be the outcome and how would this affect people if you lobotomize patients? Like, how would they react to prolonged isolation? Oh, my God. This is so fucked up. Then he was like, hey, if we can give this chimpanzee a concussion without touching him, maybe we can cause him to have amnesia. And so if it was something like we mind controlled him, he assassinated someone, we could shoot this laser or whatever, he'd have amnesia and not remember. So if he was captured, he wouldn't know that he just assassinated someone You know, all about the things. I mean, it makes sense if you're thinking about it that way, but come on, people. Mm -hmm. Like. What in the men in black? Yes. So he would, he would like beam these lasers and shit right at the chimps. All I can think of is Woody, quote, laser beams. Oh, yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? He would do the laser beams at the chimps. Then also another thing to cause concussions was them shaking the chimps, like, really, like, rocking them back and forth really, really fast. So, like, shaking baby, mm-hmm. except. hmm Yeah. But also, like, so with these two things, something in the brain that causes your body temperature to regulate mm-hmm. 
is fucked up then. Mm-hmm. And so basically their brain would like liquefy because it would be fucked up and they'd be brain dead. And then we get to this one thing, which, what? But he cut off a monkey's head and tried to transplant it onto the decapitated body of another monkey. I can't. I can't. I can't even with this dumbass motherfucker. Like, what the fuck, Baldwin? All right. So that's it about about the animals. Okay. I'm sure there was more, but. I can't hear anymore. Yeah. So now let's talk globally. Oh, my God. How is there more? Right? And again, this is just the shit that was, you know. Mislabeled and filed, and even that is still redacted. Yeah. So if you have, like, been listening, you've seen that a lot of these people are people who are, like, what Carrie usually say, disenfranchised. Sex workers, inmates, then it would be people who go into the hospital for depression. Oh, you're schizophrenic, but you don't know. You're not a doctor. Mm-hmm. So you're like, oh, well, fuck. You know, cure me, please. And then you die. But you see, like, I mean, it's yeah. people who are... Vulnerable. Mm-hmm. CIA officers in Europe and Asia were, were continuing that trend because they... We're like, people who are expendable. Fuck them. Mm-hmm. We're just, you know, gonna, like, test on them. And enemy agents, like, if we capture them, all of these people, people who they might, like, they're suspects of whatever, like, they might turn on us. They might be whatever. Let's get them. Mm-hmm. Round them up. So they would get these people throw them into a cell and like not just test drugs but like electroshock therapy oh my God. extreme temperatures sensory isolation and the entire time they just question them interrogating them and they want to see where they break down like when did they break down how long can they last and they're looking at like How can we break down the human ego? So it's like, they're not only trying to find out how the mind works, but it's like how to destroy it. Mm -hmm. To build it back up, but how to destroy it. Mm -hmm. Then there's this French little village. It was near the Swiss border. Like, seriously, like, it's quaint. Yeah. You know, like, you know everybody. Well, hundreds of people just went fucking insane. Uh Uh-uh. And it all was because of a batch of baguettes from the local bakery had ergot, which is like a hallucinogenic mold. Yeah. Um, And it developed when rye... Is this the mold that a lot of people say is what happened to the rye bread... During, like, the Salem witch trials and stuff. Yes. Okay. Okay. But mm, that's what was blamed for it. Yeah, right. But <laughs> we know MK Ultra was to blame. So here's some shit that went down. One man tried to drown himself. He was heard screaming that snakes were 
eating his belly. Okay. There is an 11-year-old who tried to strangle his grandmother. Oh. One man shouted, I'm a plane, before jumping out of a second floor window, breaking his legs. But then he got up and went on for 50 yards before he couldn't anymore. There was another guy who told his doctor that he saw his heart escaping his body through his feet. And he just begged the doctor to put it back in his body. Oh. Mm-hmm. So many of them were taken to the local asylum in straight jackets. And it all turns out that the baguettes were laced with LSD. Wow. But can you imagine? You don't know that you've taken LSD. Mm-mm. And I mean, like, these acid trips, like, I've never done acid, but they say they're, like, literally psychedelic, lots of colors. Like, you see weird shit, you know, Mm -hmm. all of the things. I mean, he saw a snake eating his belly, but, like, he saw it, you know? But you don't know why. Like, it's just happening. That is so scary. Like, you feel like you're losing your mind. Yeah. For no reason. Like, it doesn't matter if it lasts an hour or what. Like, that is traumatic. But then shit gets really shitty in Canada. Oh, God. Inner Dr. Ewan Cameron, he was over the Allen Memorial Institute in the 50s and the 60s. And he was all about, like, okay, this combination of chemically induced sleep, electroshock therapy... And experimental hallucinogenic drugs like LSD could depattern the brain. And so that's his like coined term, depattern. And his main thing was like, this could help people with schizophrenia depattern, and then doctors could repattern patients. But Here's a thing, too. He had a thing called psychic driving, which he would do all of this shit that's bad anyway, because it's like prolonged induced sleep. We'll get into that. But while they're sleeping, they're subjected to repetitive messages, playing, and it's not like positive shit. Yeah. So, okay. Because, again, you got to break down the mind. To build it back up, Mm -hmm. as they say, allegedly. So that did not work. However, the depatterning did wipe out the patient's memory and basically rendered them as a child again. Oh, my God. They forgot basic skills like how to use the bathroom, how to dress themselves, how to tie their shoes who their family members were. It sounds very similar to a stroke. And it almost sounds like, so with rehab after a stroke, your brain has neuroplasticity in that it can relearn things. So through therapy and all of that, you know, that's how you gain function back of a limb, your speech, all of the things. Mm -hmm. And so they're not wrong. Yeah. It just is wrong right you know it's Mm -hmm. like the concept is there it's just really shitty yeah yeah like with the other things about the assassination thing Mm -hmm. like it's like in the grand scheme of things in the overall thing it's like 
Not a bad idea. Yeah. But, oh, okay. In the like, minutiae minutia of, of it. Yes. yes. That's my new favorite word right now. It's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I know. Ooh. So these experiments in Canada were funded by grants from the CIA through one of their front organizations known as the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Cameron didn't know he was working with the CIA. Wow. Yeah. At first. Because I really think something, I don't know, because they ended up paying him a little bit more mm-hmm. to keep going mm-hmm. and, you know, like, study Hush some money. more. Do some more. I, I just feel like, I don't know. I feel like he'd be like, wait, what's up with this? Yeah. Because it was... I don't even know. It was like $61,000, but in today's money, it was like 200000 Yeah. That's a lot just to be like... Fuck, 61000 is a lot of oh, money. Oh, for sure. But like, it's not for the foundation. It's a personal thing. Yeah. You know? So they were really intrigued with Dr. Cameron and his psychic driving sessions. Again, he was doing this for his own research to quote-unquote, cure schizophrenia and shit like that. But CIA was like, oh, no, this is exactly what we need to wipe these people's minds so we can control them. Wow. So, like, CIA is literally in the background, like, looking like Mr. Burns or whatever from The Simpsons, like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) with little weasel fingers. With the fire in the back? Yes, So these psychic driving sessions, like several other CIA projects, experimented on patients who were mostly housewives and children sent in for treatment of, like, you know, depression, and were totally bamboozled by Cameron into thinking they needed treatment, but not knowing what kind of freaking treatment, not knowing that they were going to be tested on Not knowing that they were human test subjects. I hope they knew they were human. Not after he got through with them. Touche. So they go in for depression, anxiety, addiction. And he's like, okay, this is what's actually causing that. So we need to attack the root of the problem. And then he basically sedated them, strapped them on a gurney, left them isolated on an upper floor that was secluded and secure, and not once were they told how long they were going to be in treatment for. Wow. So Dr. Cameron had his little essay, and it was titled, The Effects Upon Human Behavior of the Repetition of Verbal Signals. Oh, so verbal abuse. (laughs) So this was like a four-parter, all right? The first part was breaking down their patterns that they had ongoing. So that means he was de-patterning them. That's his coined term again. And that was done by intensive electroshocks. And these were more than 20 times intense than what they are today. Holy shit. The second step is Intensive repetition of prearranged verbal signal. And this could be 16 hours a day for six to seven days. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. And really what this is, 
So first, it would be repetitive, negative messages about their inadequacies, all of, you know, just beating them down. Literally everything that is a source of their insecurity. Mm -hmm. That they've told him about. You know, Uh they came in here, here, here's my anxiety, here's my addiction, here's... My vulnerability. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and then he used it against them. He weaponized their insecurities against them. Well, so then he's like, but I'm not a terrible person. He follows that up with positive things like day five, six, and seven. Oh, I mean, yeah, that makes up for it. Mm-hmm. And again, these are 16-hour intervals. And so that means some of these phrases, words, all of this could be repeated up to half a million times. Holy shit. You know the only thing I can do for 16 hours? Sleep and Candy Crush. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Third part is a period of intensive repetition where the patient's kept in partial sensory isolation. But what he doesn't say is that he's administering LSD and shit while he's isolating them And they don't fucking know. So they're tripping balls, not knowing what the fuck, tied down. That is so fucked up. Yeah. So then the last part is repression of the driving period is carried out by putting the patient after the conclusion of the period into continuous sleep for seven to ten days. Now that's the part I could sign up for. But with this, he also does the... The positive thinking and all of that, yeah. again, still. But not like, I don't want to be, you know, an insulin-induced coma. Yeah. He's not doing it for your health. Oh, absolutely not. You know, and it's like, <sighs> I get why some people have to do it. Yeah, for you sure. Know? But like, the fuck? So, okay. One time he had the speakers, like, by the people's pillows Well, they weren't always listening because if they turn their head a weird way, they wouldn't be able to hear the speakers that much. So he's like, this isn't going to work. You know, they need all of this. So he put speakers in football helmets and put them on the patient and locked them into it. Oh, no, that is very uncomfortable. I mean, not that the rest of the things aren't uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but get that shit off my head. You know, that's so hot. One of the patient's kids said that they know that some of the patients were banging their heads up against the wall and stuff when they would be up, but they still had the fucking helmet on. Mm -hmm. And like, it was crazy. So that's why he was like, let's, we can put them to sleep and they have to listen to it. And they, you know, like, let's restrain them. Let's do this. So it's like, I don't know. Like you can see the progression of where he got to, but it's like, meanwhile, you're driving these people mad. Also, there's no scientific process if you're changing the rules of the game as you go. Yeah. So he also dabbled in sensory deprivation, like I mentioned. Well, he once locked a woman in a small white box for 35 days. What? She was deprived of all light, smells, and sound. I think somewhere there was a study that said, should have wrote it down, that people can't spend more than like 40 hours without, like, going mad. Wow. 35 days. And you have no concept of time. So it's not mm-hmm. like you're like, okay, I'm about, it's it's almost the next night. 
mm-hmm. if I can just make it until morning. Like you have no concept of time. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So you will be like, oh, this sounds lovely. So the place where he will do all of this, the, the secure room on the upper floor, it's called the sleep room. So sounds like somewhere you'd be like, sign me up. Mm-hmm. But that sounds fucking like creepy pasta as shit to me. Yeah, I can see that. So, okay, I know I've been talking for so long, y'all, but I have a few people that I want to just touch on and then I'm done, I swear. These people all were patients slash victims of Dr. Cameron. Linda McDonald, she was a 25-year-old mother of five children, all very young, and she was dealing with postpartum depression and had chronic back pains. So her doctor, her family doctor, told her husband, hey, you should take her to go see Dr. Cameron. He's the best in his field, all of this. And so they went. Well, after a few days of being under observation, he said that she had acute schizophrenia and he transferred her to the sleep room. And that's where she stayed for 86 days. Wow. She was kept basically in a vegetable-like state because he used LSD and other narcotics. And she would only wake up from the electroshock therapy. In the time frame of the 86 days, she received 102 electroshock treatments. Wow. When she left the Institute, she said... I had to be toilet trained. I was a vegetable. I had no identity, no memory. I had never existed in the world before. I was like a baby. Wow. She had no idea who her husband was, who her kids were. Like, so, I mean, what do you do? And not to mention, how do you process that trauma and get the help that you need to work through it? Because at that point, you would trust no one. Like, the person that you had entrusted your mental health to before. And is, quote, best of the best. Intentionally traumatized you in such a way that, I mean, I don't even know. Well, shit gets shittier. Oh, God. Like I mentioned about kids, there were kids who were sexually abused. Oh. And in one case, it was by several different men. Oh, It was all high-ranking federal government officials. What? And it was set up by Cameron and MKUltra, like, researchers, because they wanted to have blackmail on them for further funding. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Another person, her name is Jan Steele, and in 1957, she was a... Happy and energetic 33-year-old. She was an active person who enjoyed outdoor shit like skiing and horseback riding. That same year, she was admitted to the Montreal's Allen Memorial Institute. And she was diagnosed with manic depression and delusional thinking. But what was really going on is that she had lost her first child, who was born with spina bifida, but had recently had another child, and she was like one or two. So in the toddler stage, just, you know, I mean, 
Shit's hard. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, too, when she looks at that child that she has, she still mourns the, the loss of the other one and what their life could have been. Mm-hmm. So she was suffering from postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. Not delusional thinking and manic depression. Well, she was kept in a chemically induced coma for weeks. One series lasted 29 days. Wow. The second one lasted 18 days. And, of course, this was all accompanied with a series of the electroshock treatment. Dr. Cameron had wrote in his report, She was extremely confused and disoriented, but much more cooperative. Wow. Then she was subjected, you know, to rounds of LSD and other experimental drugs. And then had, again, the looped tape-recorded messages. And the nurses had to keep detailed notes while they gave her the doses of medicine and stuff. And they said that she would pace down the hall and she would talk about feeling like a prisoner. And she would just say, it's like being buried alive. Somebody please do something. Well. Allison Steele is her daughter, and she said at one point, Jean, her mom, was so upset that she thought she was going to have to go back for follow-up treatments that she tried to jump out of her husband's car. Oh, God. Yeah. Allison said that Jean was never able to really function as a human after what, what was done to her at this institute. Well, and again, there's no seeking help after that because mm-hmm. you're jaded and were taken advantage of when you did. Yeah. Allison said that when she was a teenager, she was like, okay, my mama is not like the others. She said that when you wanted to talk about emotional stuff with her, she just couldn't do it. Like her emotions were gone. And it's like, she did not have a soul. Like, she just was heartless. And that wasn't her before. Right. She said that Jean would just sit alone in the dark, but she would write codes and numbers all over the walls. And one time, she had spray-painted the ceiling with red swirls all over it. And then she would take the wallpaper and cut little sections of it, and then she would pin it To the whole room. Those little sections. Well, that's fucking tedious as shit. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, can you imagine growing up with this? No. Like, her whole life. She was two when her mom went in for treatment. So, it took over 60 years, but they did get an out-of-court settlement. But Jean didn't see that. Allison did, though. And it's probably an undisclosed amount. Yeah, it was out-of-court settlement. The next one's Charles Taney, and Charles was a loving father, very attentive to his kids, his wife, all of the things. He would do surprise amusement park days, just everything. Like, you want ice cream? Let's go. Let's do it. That was the first four years of Julie Taney's life. In the spring of 1956, the right side of his face started to hurt. Well, the doctors said there was a lesion in the cranial nerve, But they thought that it really was like psychosomatic, but the pain nagged him for months. So January 1957, he was admitted to the Institute 
And Dr. Cameron came to the rescue and he placed him in an insulin-induced coma for the next seven weeks. When he went home, March 1957, two and a half months after his admission, he was frail, very confused, and just very distant with his family. He was just reserved. He didn't recognize his family. He called his son, Alan, an idiot. What? Like, he was a super cool dad before. Yeah. But what's worse is that he physically abused Julie from then to into her 20s. Whoa. And it's only because then he suffered a stroke and he lost the ability to even write or talk. Julie was the one who was interviewed about this. And she said, my life was hell as a result of this. It still is. They have to recognize that the families really suffered. And he died in 1992. Julie said it was minutes after receiving a payout from the Canadian government. What? Mm Mm-hmm. But it's like, yeah, you're fucking with this one person's life. But who you're fucking with They have a family, and you're fucking with all of their lives. And I'm not saying that just at this point it caused him to be an abusive dad, but, like, never before, Mm -hmm. and then this. But, like, I mean, he fucking was through torture for two and a half months. Phyllis Goldberg, in 1945, she was only 19 years old, and she was pursuing a career as a nurse. She went in to the Institute Because she had a bout of mild depression. But instead of treating her, they fucking broke her. Oh, God. I'm sensing a pattern. Mm Mm-hmm. Or a D pattern. Oh, I see what you did there. When she would be with her family, she didn't communicate. She would just randomly burst out in laughter. And they said even her walk was different. She wasn't able to do anything for herself, like not even getting herself dressed. And they said even like small moments of affection, like a pat on the head, anything would just like, she acted like it was so painful. So she would like shriek and cringe and all of that. Because she was so sensory deprived for so long? hmm By the time she died in 2011, she had spent the last 20 years of her life institutionalized oh. because she was a complete vegetable. Oh, God. Then there's Velma Orlico, and she's the wife of a new Democratic Party member of the Canadian Parliament. So, like, her husband, big deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the time, she was a little bit younger, but still. She, too, you know, had a lot of electroshock therapy Uh, was given injections of LSD on 14 occasions. And she said that they made her feel like her bones were melting. And she would say, I don't want these. I don't want to do it. And the doctors and nurses would kind of like berate her and say, you're a bad wife. You're a bad mother. If you wanted to get better, you would do this for your family. Think of your daughter. Wow. And so she'd do it. At the time of the interview, her husband, David, said that she operates at about 20% capacity. She said that she suffers from chronic depression, which sometimes becomes acute. She calls those times her black holes. 
She won't see anyone. She won't leave the house. She can't read more than a page. Her attention span just cannot do it. And she used to love to read. Like that was her therapy. She cannot write. She said that she has unexplained fears. Like she will wake up, freak the fuck out in the middle of the night, but have no idea why. Like no way to calm herself because she has no fucking clue why she's scared. She said that she has a limp and she's like, I look like I've been crippled, but I I wasn't in an accident. And sadly, when she first returned home from the Institute, she tried to take her own life. Oh. Then there's Robert Logie, and he was sent to Dr. Cameron by his family doctor. And again, he had a pain in his leg, and the doctor was like, go see this guy. He'll fix it because the doctor really thought it was psychosomatic. Well, he was diagnosed as schizophrenic by Dr. Cameron, and he went through the whole fucking thing again. But here's the thing. He went through it. 23 straight days of hearing one message, and he remembered this message when he left. You killed your mother. What? You killed your mother. When he went home, he was really shocked to find that his mom was- Still alive? Still alive. What the fuck? Yeah. Here's another kicker. There was this doctor who was like, oh my God- Dr. Cameron, he's the best of the best. And so she approached him and was like, hey, I want to do a fellowship in psychiatry. But Dr. Cameron did a physical exam and he said that she appeared to be very nervous and admitted her as a patient. Uh-uh. And so for 11 days, she underwent the deep patterning experiments So she had barbiturates and the electroshock treatments, all of the things. And she actually was hospitalized after this because her brain didn't get enough oxygen. Oh, my God. So he gave this poor med student a fucking anoxic brain injury because she didn't have enough fucking oxygen. Yes. He erased 10 years of her life. Oh, my God. Today, she suffers from... Prosopagnosia, which is where she cannot recognize people's faces. And she can't really remember names either. And that's really, you know, bad for her because she's a fucking doctor. Wow. That's her part of her brain injury from not having Mm -hmm. fucking oxygen. Yeah. And she said it's dangerous because people can say anything. Yeah. Like, hey, will you give me a ride? You know, and she... I mean, if she's embarrassed because, Mm -hmm. oh, shit, I should know him. You know what I mean? Okay. And then, bam, she's done for, you know? But the gall of Dr. Cameron. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, dude had big balls. An estimated 70 patients were compensated through lawsuits. But there were hundreds more who applied but were rejected because they had not been depatterned enough to warrant compensation. Fuck that. Mm-hmm. So all in all, MK Ultra it consisted of 149 subprojects. They contracted out to different universities, research foundations, all of the things. At least 80 institutions and 185 private researchers participated. 
But most of them were unaware that they were working with the CIA. So MK Ultra officially ended in 1973. Wow. Or did it? What you mean, or did it? Dun, dun, dun. It better fucking have. How do we know? We don't. Because if that shit happened then, you bet your ass shit like that's happening now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it literally, like, the fucking opioid crisis could be. Yeah. Like, it really could be like a CIA thing that got out of hand. Yeah. Well, I never want to leave my house again. Well, I hope your thing is better than this. Actually, it's true crime, so it's going to be worse. No, I don't think anything can be worse than (laughs) a fucking government plot to rid people of their brains. Yeah. Like, that's fucking true. Yeah, this is not a movie. Mm -hmm. This was proven. Mm -hmm. Okay. There was a show on that channel, Viceland, and it's called The Devil You Know. Ooh. Yeah, and it's a five-part series about this guy and obvi murders the devil i know him well the story is all about this guy named john lawson and it centers around him and his home in clemens north carolina which is like right outside of winston-salem which interestingly enough was in another story i did remember The incestuous, remember that? Yes. Okay. Well, John Lawson was born in 1978 in California. His parents ended up getting divorced and he, his mom got remarried and they just had kind of a tumultuous relationship. And it said that, again, like every basically person in my stories, he had a rough childhood. There was, you know, I think that there were times where he really didn't feel loved by his mother and, you know, before things took a, such a drastic turn in his life, I think that his fears and abandonment and all that kind of ma- manifested his anger with him. And then he had a really hard time in school. He was like 18 years old and still a freshman in high school. You know, he had been held back quite a few times. And so he just he just had a hard time. He was bullied and stuff, too, because he was so much older And so the show, The Devil You Know, goes into a lot more detail on his upbringing and all of that. But just know it was was hard for him. He ended up in North Carolina, though, with his mom and stepdad. But he didn't get along with his stepdad. So he basically told his mom, it's me or stepdad. And so she chose her son. And the stepdad moved out, even though they stayed in the house that his stepdad owned. The fuck? Right. Like, did he own it outright, or was he still paying on it? I think still paying on it. Oh, hell no. I mean, I agree. Been like, I'll leave, but uh, you got three months until the bank kicks your ass out. Right. So, Winston-Salem used to be this, and we talked about this a little bit in the other episode that I did in this area, used to be this huge tobacco growingness area thing, factories and such. But as the industry changed, there was a lot a lot of people that were out of work. And so when you have this once booming town that kind of becomes desolate, a lot of times drugs come in because it's how people can make money. So there was a lot of drug use in the area. And 
from what I understand, still is. And John Lawson, he just wanted to go against the mainstream. You know, they're in the Bible Belt, lots of churches, lots of people who he just wanted to rebel against. I think he always felt kind of slighted in life, like he always got the raw end of the deal kind of thing. And so he wanted to buck the system. If he could find a way to go against the mainstream, he did. So he tended to be more gothic, you know, dropped out of school, anti-establishment, all the things. Well, he fancied himself a Satanist. And so he changed his name to Pazuzu Algarod. And if you remember, I didn't. Pazuzu was the name of the demon that possessed her on the exorcist. Yes. Of course you remembered that. And I didn't. Yes. (laughs) So from here on out, he's going to be known as Pazuzu. So Pazuzu's mom had him committed basically for a while because she was having such a hard time with him and getting him to do fucking anything that was productive and not hurting animals and shit, you know? And so he was diagnosed as being agoraphobic, schizophrenic, and psychotic. The terrible triad. Yeah, I'm going to say that's a cocktail. And his mom basically was like, look, getting him the help that he needed for his mental health was expensive. And I didn't have the fucking money. And so we couldn't do it. Which is, I mean, she's not wrong. You know, I mean, it is fucking expensive. And you know what? Tangent time. But your mental health benefits for your insurance should not be any different than your physical things. I saw someone in the group say that we should stop saying mental health and physical health. It should all just be your health. Well, damn, that's good. Mm-hmm. I was like, yes, it should. Because you're exactly right. It's completely different on insurance and everything. And that's what we need. We need more people to have like accessibility for mental health. Mm-hmm. Stuff. Services. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Also, Pazuzu is not a real name of a demon, I want to say. I think you're right. Well, again, like I said, that his his main goal was to buck the system and to go against anything considered mainstream or the norm. He would tell people that he, again, sacrificed animals, that he had all this, like, mind power that he could like control the weather and all this stuff he was a wannabe charles manson hell the control in the weather i was thinking you were gonna say powder do you remember that movie i sure do he was like very pale very white powder (laughs) and he would like in the weather it's the lightning yes and again i told you he was kind of gothic but he had he, like he took it to the extreme. He shaved his eyebrows off, which that affects the face. Well, on RuPaul's Drag Race, I see some of them shave their eyebrows, and I mean it's it's no thing. It's not a thing. Let me see a picture. Well, let me tell you some more though. Okay, like dreadlocks. His face was all tattooed up. Are you talking about Post Malone? No, close. But he filed his teeth down 
to be like pointy. Okay, I can't get with that. And did it himself. Oh. While he was on crystal meth. But on purpose. Like, not like in a crystal meth, like, whatever, but was like. Yeah. No, this is the opportunity to do what I want to do because it doesn't hurt as bad. Yeah. Oh. Uh-huh. It it does make a difference uh-huh. on him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Before and after. Okay. Before is like Kurt Cobain. Mm-hmm. Second is like... Charlie Manson meets skinhead wannabe. Yeah. Also, who would want their partner to file their teeth into sharp points? I mean, maybe their partner liked a little nibble here and there. I mean, I like a nibble, but that's a piercing. (laughs) He also had Satan tattooed on his forearm. Just, again. Was it Satan or was it Satin? Satan. His tattoo artist could spell. (laughs) Well, Pazuzu fancied himself a bit of a Satanist. I'm not going to touch the whole, like, what Satanists really are versus what it is, like, in the media and stuff. Because that's a whole, like, conversation Just know that we know that what people think of it is, is not actually what it is and all the things. But he tried to kind of combine some of that and Islam to like create his own religion and like get followers. Again, almost like this wannabe Manson-esque where he had like followers. He did have a little like je ne sais quoi that like did attract people. I mean, same with Manson. He did, too. I mean, to be a leader in that way, to have people buy into what you're selling, you kind of have to be charismatic. The other thing, too, is he lived with his mother in that house, and he had free reign. He did whatever in the fuck he wanted to do. And his mother was, I think, scared of him because there was some domestic abuse happening between him and you know him abusing his mother. Oh no. Mhm. And so she just kind of let him do what he what you know whatever. And so his house became the party house. It became the house where everyone went to go do whatever they wanted to do because they could. And his stepdad is still paying for it. Girl, wait. Mhm. The peak of this story is right around 2014, 2015. So kind of picture that era. Everybody's going over to Pazuzu's house to drink, do drugs, fuck around. You know, everybody's having sex with everybody. Pazuzu has these, like, top girls that are called his fiancés. Original. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One in particular was kind of his top fiancé. Her name is Amber Birch. And it's crazy because when you, like, look at pictures of them, they look similar just because, like, piercings and tattoos and they both had dreadlocks for a minute and neither one of them have eyebrows. And it's like, they kind of look very similar just because of, it's crazy how much of a distinctive feature your eyebrows really are. Yeah. Pazuzu loved filth. What? Uh Uh-huh. The dirtier the better. I'm talking, he didn't shower for like a year. Oh, I couldn't be his fiance. <laughs> oh, he, God. Uh-huh. Smegma. They, okay. They, like, smoked in the house. Oh, God. They, of course, drank, partied, all the drugs. 
it looked like a hoarder's nightmare in that house. There was shit everywhere. Clothes, paper, trash. You're done with that? Throw it on the floor. Oh, you need to actually take a shit? Do it on the floor. No. You need to pee? Do it on the floor. No. Yes, girl. Yes. No. Mm Mm-hmm. There was graffiti all over the walls, all over the outside. There was a damn pool outside that had no water in it. They were wasting a damn good pool with graffiti. You know how we love a fucking pool. Don't be trashing a pool. They trashed everything. Walls, put holes in it, threw knives at it, broke TVs. Like, just everybody was destructive at that house because they could. I don't understand where they slept because when you see the body, I wish, time out. I wish y'all could see Donna's face right now because she is literally looking around like Winona Ryder looking at that ghost. (laughs) I am because I'm thinking people shit on the floor. Uh Uh-huh. Did they cover it up with newspaper? I, I, I don't know. I couldn't do it. Fuck no, I couldn't do it. If you were like, I will pay you $100 to shit in the floor right now, I'd be like, well, I can't. I couldn't. I could. I physically would be unable. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I truly don't know where everybody slept. So his mom lived there, too. Remember that. She had her own room. And while... She still had to go through the shit rooms. Well, and while her room was the cleanest of all of them, it wasn't that clean, but it was still, compared to everything else, there was no shit in it. You know what I mean? Their house was like a fucking... And you know what's so funny? Because, okay, there's like a nine-minute video out there, y'all, if you just really want to see this house. Oh, I've got to go see it then. Of police body cams. Walking through there. Ooh. But I don't think I saw a bed in there. I I mean, I truly... And and granted, at that point, some stuff could have been removed. But I don't know where they slept. I am too big to not have a bed to sleep on. Uh Uh-uh. My back hurts and I sleep on a bed. Part of Pazuzu's, like, persona was fear. You know, he would always tell people that... Hey, I got two sex workers off the street and killed them and cannibalized them, you know, or I killed so-and-so. You know, he tried to build up this persona to instill fear in people. And so while people partied with him and, you know, did the shit and some people kind of believed in him and what he stood for, I think for the most part, people were like, nice bullshitting us, you know, kind of thing. There was also a lot of rumors that Pazuzu had skeletons buried <laughs> not in his closet I thought you were gonna say did he say I have skeletons in my closet I mean it was probably spray painted on there but <laughs> no in the yard buried I'm sorry I mean he was trying to do a persona yeah you know what I got skeletons in my closet <laughs> <laughs> well so did Eminem <laughs> Thank you for laughing. It's dumb. 
good. Okay, so he has skeletons buried in the yard. And everybody's like, knows it's rumors. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. okay, Pazuzu, you're scary. <laughs> Can I borrow your meth pipe? <laughs> you know? But in all that clutter and chaos, there was a little bit of order to the house. And that's because the back room and the basement were off limits. But he would tell his friends, hey, if you hear something in the basement, ignore it. And then he'd also be like, if someone tries to get out of the basement, don't let them out. What the fuck? But again, people are like, that's just Pazuzu. You know, when Pazuzu was about 19, he had this friend named Matt Flowers. And Matt is a prominent character in the the Devil You Know, the documentary. And he talks about how, you know, yeah, he knew that Pazuzu had some mental health issues that were going on. And, you know, when they were about 19, he, you know, he describes it saying like, he felt like he was kind of at this fork in the road in his life. And he's quoted saying, I just knew in my gut that if I kept hanging out with Pazuzu, no good was going to come of it. And he says how Pazuzu would call him his brother. And he's like, it was kind of his way to manipulate you, to make you feel closer so that he could get you to do the things that he wanted you to do. Again, he's charismatic. So there was a point in Matt's life where he says, this is a quote, for about a month straight, I thought I had lost my mind. I tried to check myself into a psychiatric facility and ended up, he found out years later that Pazuzu was secretly drugging him with mushrooms and LSD. What the MK Ultra is going on here? I, I know. It's so bizarre that that is in my story too. Yes. Oh, and the shrooms, magic mushrooms, that was also introduced by the government. I could just, I could go down a rabbit hole, a conspiracy with your story. I know, but I was just like, what the fuck? Sorry, I forgot about that. <laughs> with that, oh yeah. my God. So Matt ended up leaving because again, if you, you have to understand what this town was like too. It was, it was kind of these two stark realities in that you had this Bible Belt, Christian, go to church, keep up with the Joneses mentality, but it also had this almost counterculture of serious drug use and addiction. And, you know, they didn't mesh, but it was like the same people too, though. You know, so it was like trying to make your life appear one way. And while you're at church, your child is ODing, you know? And so it's just like, it's, I feel like it seemed very dead end for the, for the young people living there. And so Matt was like, I got to get out of here. I'm If I keep hanging out with Pazuzu, like this is only going to be bad. And so he joined the Marines. When he came back, Pazuzu was obsessed with finding out, like, did he kill anybody? Like, just like these details, you just don't ask someone that's in the military, been to war, you know, or any trauma for that matter, you know. And you see a lot of this in Matt in the documentary you know, he has a lot of trauma. He has a lot of PTSD and is self-medicating through alcohol and just is having a really hard time. That sucks that that was his salvation and... His demise almost. Yeah. Well, in the documentary, it talks a lot about the ripple effects that occurred from Pazuzu and his reign of terror, basically. And 
you know, Matt was one of them. You know, he had a really hard time and because he already had his PTSD from the military and he is self-medicating and then just adding on the all that we're about to talk about with Pazuzu and it took him a while to kind of get his life back together. You know, he's living with his one of his friends and their water gets cut off because they have no money because they can't you know, he has a hard time working and he's trying to numb the pain. And, you know, it even shows him self-harming with his cigarette butts and stuff. And it's like, it's just heartbreaking because you really get to see the culture of Winston-Salem and how that was a, a powder keg, basically, for someone like Pazuzu to grow and to create. I don't want to say a following because he didn't really have like a follow. Like he wasn't a cult leader. He kind of fancied himself that, but his house was a bit of a safe place for people to go and do drugs and escape from their lives. Also talking about mental health for people in the military, mental health benefits would be. Here's the thing. Soapbox time. I think that the root of the issue for us, in order for us to have access to mental health services in the same way that we have access to physical health services, we have to destigmatize it. And until that happens, until people understand and are able to recognize that it's not something that you can just overcome. And I just saw an article about this today, and it was talking about how, like, medication. And how people are like, well, did you try this diet? Have you tried this meditation? Have you tried that? Yeah. And that's not going to fix my bipolar disorder. That's not going to fix my anxiety. It's not going to fix my depression because it's a chemical imbalance in my brain and it has to be fixed. No amount of praying and Zen anything is going to fix a chemical imbalance. And seeking mental health services does not make you less than, does not make you not a man, not strong all the things. So until we fix that stigma attached to it, we'll never have the services that we need because people don't see the value. That's true. Stepping back off my soapbox. When Matt Flowers was coming back from Afghanistan, he stayed over in Kuwait in like a decompression camp. And while he was there, he started talking to a ex-girlfriend that was still living in the area. And this ex-girlfriend was really good friends with Amber Birch. And if you remember, Amber Birch was Pazuzu's top fiance. Well, when he gets back, you know, in the States and he hangs out with the ex-girlfriend, she tells him that she had to help Amber and Pazuzu bury a body in the backyard. Uh, what? Uh Uh-huh. She's just willy-nilly with that information. She's who you don't call. Well, but also if you remember, I mean, everybody's fucked up. Everybody's on drugs. Everybody's doing all the things. And so he's like, I mean, this guy's my friend. He calls me his brother. But uh, if there's a fucking body buried in the backyard, I got to tell somebody. Right. So he calls in an anonymous tip to police and tells that, there's a body buried in the backyard. Well, the the ex-girlfriend had said that she had helped bury Tommy Welch and that, again, she was forced to. Well, when Matt called in that tip, 
He had no idea that Tarina Billing, another girl completely separate from that, had already told police two months earlier that her dad told her that he had helped bury a body in Pazuzu's backyard. Okay. Well, bodies are piling up here. And, you know, this poor girl, I mean, her dad's life had kind of taken a a downward spiral. He was doing drugs. That's why, I mean, he was older, you know, and that's, that's why he was at Pazuzu's house and he was forced and all the things. Look, you have to be on drugs to be at Pazuzu's house. You have to be... And like on the heavy, heavy, freaky deaky kind of drugs. You have to be on a hallucinogenic that makes you think that that house is clean. They have to be on the Febreze of drugs. (laughs) Nose blind. I mean, not sponsored. Well, so Alan, who was, I know this is a lot of names, but it's a lot of fucking people. Alan, who was the dad that helped bury the body, he was dating a girl named Crystal. Crystal Matlock was right up in the mix with Pazuzu and Amber. She was kind of in the upper echelon with those two that were the main people, you know. There are a lot of errors made by the Forsyth Sheriff's Department, like when it comes to this case. They ignored Tarina Billings' call saying, Hey, my dad said he helped bury a body. Fucking ignored it. She was very credible. She was not on drugs. She was pregnant at the time. Went to college. You know, not that a college education makes you think, but like she was, as compared to her peers in the area, she was like top notch, very credible. Yeah. Well, and it's like if someone says, hey, someone told me, that they buried a body in this person's backyard, or were, they were forced to help bury a body, maybe just go check it out. Well, and even then, it's not like she said, my dad told me that Bobby Joe down the street told him right. that he saw, but you know, I mean, like, it's, no, my dad told me he was forced to bury a body. Like, if someone is turning in a fucking parent, could you imagine so, again, the documentary does a good job of breaking down the search warrants and where things went wrong. But basically, when they went to the house from these, you know, reports, they fucking tell Pazuzu, hey, some people said you got some ship, some, some bodies buried in the backyard. Do you? No? Cool. Check you later. Just like the cops in the case of J.C. Dugard... When she was kidnapped, they came to the door of her kidnappers. She's out in the back shack. Mm-hmm. And they knock, knock, knock. Hey, uh, do you have any kids here? Some people said that no one's here. Who lives here? Just you and her? Okay, cool. Cool, dude. Bye. Yep. Like, mm, like four times. Mm-hmm. After the police came and were like, knock, knock, knock. You don't have anybody's here? Cool. Matt ended up telling Pazuzu, like, Yo, I'm the one that told police, like, just so you know. Fuck. They they were still cool, man. He was like, you know, I kept hanging out with him. I didn't want him hurting people. I didn't know what was true or not. So. Well, at this time, he didn't know that he had been 
being drugged with LSD. I'm, I'm not sure because I don't know exactly when he found out because he said it was years later he found out. So I don't know if that includes the, you know what I mean? Because it yeah. had been some years because he was in the military, you know? Well, in the meantime, Pazuzu and Amber are still living their best life pretending to be Satanists. They have this altar in the house that they do like rituals. They like suck and drink each other's blood. Well, he can easily bite her and draw some blood because his fucking sharp ass teeth. Mm-hmm. They would get rabbits from the pet store and use them like as sacrifices. <gasps> he wouldn't kill them in front of anybody. He would only do it like in his room, but he would like take the blood and rub it all over his face and stuff. And he said that after he sacrificed an animal, he would come out and say, like, now he's more powerful and all these things. Yeah. Allegedly about it coming from the pet store, but it's kind of the consensus. Well, in 2010, Pazuzu is actually arrested and charged as an accessory because this guy, Joseph Chandler, poor thing, 30 years old, legally blind, whose body was found in the county next door, floating in the fucking river. Pazuzu's linked to it and arrested. Well, because aside from the domestic abuse against his mother, he's been arrested for, he didn't really have a criminal record. So he gets off with two years probation. So he can go back to his throne of filth. He was charged as an accessory to the shooting death of someone. Oh my God. Two years fucking probation. Maybe he is fucking powerful. Fuck. Well, not only... So, he he got charged with assaulting his mom in 2011. And not only did he get charged with assaulting her, Amber got fucking charged. So, she was abusing his mother, too. Oh, the fuck? No, she will never. I know. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Oh, hell no. Dude, look. Well, I would never beat any of my family members. Right. But I can talk shit about them all fucking day. You say a damn word. No. Can you imagine if someone physically hurt your mother? They'd be buried in the backyard. Uh-huh. But no one would have to help me. Besides Carrie, okay? Let's just be honest. One, I already hate Pazuzu. Because be original, dude. Don't use the name from the fucking exorcist. Two, take a shower, okay? Because whatever. And don't shit on the floor because you have indoor plumbing. People don't, okay? Mm-hmm. But as much as I hate him, Amber is on a whole nother level right now. I know. Like, bitch, the audacity of you to abuse his mother. When you're living in her husband's house for fucking free. Because he left because your fucking fiance said, I don't like him. Mm-hmm. Matt says that there are more dead than we know. He thinks that Pazuzu might have killed a bunch of people because he said that, so there was this guy one time, drug addict, really wanted some pain pills, and he told Pazuzu to smash his hand with a hammer so he could go get pain pills. And instead of using the blunt side, Pazuzu flipped it, and chopped his finger off. And nobody ever saw that guy again after that. Oh, Pazuzu's extra as fuck. Yeah. 
Then there was a guy that was on Pazuzu's nerves. I can't remember exactly how it went down. The documentary tells more about it. But Pazuzu asked Matt to kill the guy with his military training and all that. So Matt takes the guy down to go get a milkshake at the local Dairy Queen. I don't know where they went. I don't know what they got. But they left. And he was like, bro, just so you know, he asked me to kill you. So um, you should probably hit the road, Jack. And the guy, like, didn't leave, and he was never seen again either. So that's purely conjecture on the part of Matt. Yeah. And while while my heart breaks for the things that Matt endured and just in his life has been through and the things that, you know, his friend was Pazuzu and all the things, and as much as he hated in the show when people would talk about being like, oh, well, I knew Pazuzu. We were da-da-da-da. We were friends, blah-blah-blah-blah. And, you know, it almost was like he was like the cool kid because he really was his friend. I think that he has a little bit of that that kind of histrionic embellishment to some of his stories. I, I don't take everything he's saying at face value. And if you watch the documentary, let me know. Do you kind of get that vibe from him or not? I don't know. I can't read a person's soul on a damn documentary, but that's just the vibe I got. It wasn't long after all that happened with Matt telling the guy, like, yo, Pazuzu wants you dead. It's about three days after that, that the Forsyth Sheriff's Department finally had the warrant and came and searched the property. And I know I'm missing a lot of steps here. It's a long story. And just know that I I know we're missing some steps. But finally did. And... They found the body of Tommy Welch and Joshua Wetzler. Joshua Wetzler had been missing for five years. He had a son, and his son had no idea where he was. He and his, she they, they called her his partner. They had bought a farm. It started going in foreclosure. He started selling drugs to get money. He was busted, went to prison and then after that it was kind of like that was all she wrote because again it goes back to these societal issues of once someone's been to jail for a drug offense it's very hard to find work you can't find work you can't make a living what do you do you go back to selling drugs and so he's kind of wrapped up in this life where he was starting to spend some time at Pazuzu's house doing drugs selling drugs all the things and it said that Pazuzu kept him locked in the basement for an extended period of time to torture him and do the, do all these things before he shot him like six times and Amber helped him bury him in the backyard. This was also who Alan helped bury, the dad. Golly. Also, very sad, but can I take a moment here and just ask you, did Pazuzu take out the phone book Flip to the end and say, okay, these are the two people I'm going to kill. Because why are they both W's? I don't know. Like, they seem very close. Like, what in the white pages is going on here? Well, Amber Birch is actually who pulled the trigger and killed Tommy Welch. And then her, along with Crystal Matlock, helped bury Tommy Welch. So, they're all arrested. And... Apparently, Amber Birch flips real fucking quick. Of course. And honestly, it's the only thing that saved her. Because Pazuzu 
died by suicide awaiting trial. Mm. Now, there's some hmm things about his suicide because he was on a suicide watch and had been taken to another location because they were having a hard time keeping an eye on him, all the things, and they didn't find like a a tool that he used. But it's also said that because he he died by from like blood loss from essentially a laceration a laceration on the arm, and so they're like, well, we don't see anything that he cut himself with. But on the other hand, documentation previously had shown that he was self harming by biting himself and trying to cut with those fucking jagged teeth. So. There are some conspiracies attached to his death and like the autopsy report and all of that that I'm not really going to go into. But needless to say, he died by suicide. Reminds me of Jeffrey Epstein. You're not wrong. Mm, Just saying, but go ahead. Especially when you know that all the search warrants and all this stuff was sealed and the Forsyth Sheriff's Department wasn't really given any information to... Yeah. The media, and again, there's a lot of conspiracies. Also, it takes me back to Eileen Warnos. Uh-huh. And when she's like, they didn't want to catch me because they wanted me to kill these uh-huh. people. Not saying that's what happened. But if he's doing the shit, I, you know, I don't know. You know, I yeah. love a conspiracy. But yeah. it's kind of like he's terrible. But if they know, like, okay, it's centralized here And then if we can, you know, like, he's going to one-off these people. You know what I mean? Like, you never know. Yeah. And that's probably why he thought he was so powerful. It's because he was in cahoots with them. But then... But then you can never trust anyone because if you get caught, you're never going to live to, like, Mm -mm. turn on people. Mm -mm. So, like, never think that your powerful friends are going to be like, oh, we got you, boo. Mm -mm. They don't. Mm -mm. They got you. They got you straight to your grave. Yeah. You're going to be buried in your backyard. Lucky for Amber, though, that she had flipped so early. Because, really, the only card she had to play would be if she turned state's evidence on Pazuzu. And since he died by suicide, there's no trial for her to turn state's evidence, right? But, luckily, she had already confessed to everything and had started working a plea deal. And so, she pled guilty. And I think she got, like, 39 years in prison with credit for time served. And then Crystal Matlock, she got sentenced, you know, for her part in disposing of the bodies and all of that. And then I think she ended up getting essentially time served. So I, don't, I can't remember exactly what she got, but it wasn't a lot. One thing about this story that's so like sensationalized is because of his appearance, because of his quote, Satanism that wasn't really Satanism. And, The victims are forgotten because of how sensationalized he is. And I feel like I kind of played into that, too, because I did talk a lot about him and not as much about the victims. The documentary does a really good job of really letting you know and understand the people connected, including the victims and their families. But I do think it's important to look at the societal shortcomings and how we, because of our stigmas around mental health and even domestic violence and you know if it's not exactly what you think of a domestic violence situation is 
and the disservice that was done to John Lawson in the beginning. Was there saving him back then? Who knows? Would he have done this either way? I don't know. There's no way to know. But I think it's important to recognize that mental health access and care played a big part in this. And how we see how big of a part it played in all of my shit. Yeah. And, and, and yours is almost like the next step to this of, because I, th- I think that the part I can't, I mean, aside from the fact that the government tried to fucking control people's mind, the, one of the things that I can't get past the most in your story is the, the attacks on these vulnerable populations of people who cannot defend themselves and are in a position where they're relying on someone up in power to help take care of them. And then when they do survive, how do you go back to counseling or something like that to get the help to cope with what you've been through when it was your counselor slash doctor that put you in that situation? Yes. And you're so right. They always would target people who were, quote unquote, expendable Mm -hmm. with the involuntary participants. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just like, fuck you. Like, we got to start from there. Like, Mm -hmm. where those people aren't expendable. Yep. And, again, if you look at the drug culture and even what leads to the drug culture, which, in your case, fucking started with the government, starting that shit. And then how those cases are prosecuted and so forth and so on. And, And it's just... It's just a fucking vicious cycle, and I don't know the answer, but I do know that the answer lies somewhere in everyone needs to stop judging each other and start loving each other and trying to understand someone else's plight. Yes. Speaking of not judging anyone, but I'm judging someone else. Dr. Cameron? Mm-hmm. Mc- Fuckerson? Doctor, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Fuckhead? He died before any of this came out in lawsuits, mm-hmm. all of this MK Ultra came out. He died. So he died being like this best of the best, groundbreaking doctor. Mm-hmm. And it's like, fuck you. Mm-hmm. He didn't have any consequences in his life. And, and neither did Pazuzu. Yeah. And and now he died by suicide, allegedly. I, I don't know. But he didn't either. I will say there is a... Kind of conspiracy theory thing, like a thinking about how the government did start the counter culture mm-hmm. and everything. And it's like all the things that they put out there, the magic mushrooms, LSD, all of that, like subdued people. And so it wasn't to make you like, it wasn't crack mm-hmm. and all of that. And so it was like, it made people easily managed Mm -hmm. and so it was like very calculated Mm -hmm. you know what i mean so like again it's like yeah if this is an epidemic cool like this could be handled true meanwhile though i mean i could go on a whole tangent about drug culture and the war on drugs and how it relates to disenfranchised populations or marginalized populations and how it puts them in positions like being in prison and all of that, that keeps a man, keeps the man down, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I could talk forever about that, but 
this has already been the longest damn episode known to man, so we'll table that for another day. Yes. Was this a heavy episode? It was. Because I think that it's like, um, trigger warning, mental health, you know? Yeah. I mean, a little late for that, but... Yeah. But even with my own mental health stuff, because when I have a day where my anxiety is so high and it's like, there's no explaining it. There's no way that I can articulate what I feel inside to someone that doesn't have anxiety, except to say, think of something that makes you nervous, public speaking, anything. And how you feel when you do that is how I feel all the time with my anxiety. And so it's like that with this. I mean, there's so many people in these stories that mental illnesses led them to the paths where they crossed. They led them to Pazuzu's house. They led them to prison or to these hospitals or even the military to get away from Mm -hmm. whatever. And it put them in positions to be these lab rats. Mm hmm non-voluntarily and you know and so i think it's just it all goes back to mental health yeah sorry health y'all let us know what you think because we can start our own internet rabbit hole with the shit that donna talked about don't because um i told you i've had a migraine since i've been researching it my eyes crossed just listening to it (laughs) much less if i had to read all this and put it together and i didn't even cover Oh, no way. Like, I mean, well, you said it was like 20,000 pages. Yeah. And I mean, some of it I was like, I wanted to focus more on like individual stuff than some of the like ideas that they had and all of the things. Because I mean, think about like Jason Bourne. That's all about MK Ultra, And because they wanted to find and create a Manjurian candidate and like he can be, you mm-hmm. know, we can completely control him and all of this there. Stranger Things. Yeah. Eleven. Yeah. That's all about MK Ultra. Oi. Oh my God. Okay. Whew. Rabbit <laughs> hole. I can't do it right now. <laughs> Don't say rabbit. Tool. You know what I can do? Creep it real. And, and don't, don't get, get scared. scared.